Hello and welcome to Switzer TV. I'm Peter Switzer. Our program goes out every Monday night on our own YouTube channel. On tonight's show, we look at our high-tech stocks here in Australia called the WAX stocks. That's Wise Tech, Afterpay, Altium, Appen and Zero. Are they a screaming buy? We'll ask Mike McCarthy from CMC Markets. And the banks had a bad week last week with ANZ and Westpac reporting pretty badly. That was a bit better than expected, but still wasn't what you might call an exciting story. Are the banks a buy at this particular level in the market? We're going to ask Charlie Aiken from Aiken Investment Management and our own Paul Rickard from the Switzer Report. And if you're thinking about going long gold, have a look at my discussion with the Perth Mints, Jordan Alessio. And finally, Fidelity's Catherine Young gives you the best argument for investing in China and Asia generally. This bull market has given us birth to unusual stocks out of America called, called Bang, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google. And in Australia, we, we sort of followed suit with WAX stocks and that is a WiseTech, Appen, Altium, give me Macca, last day. Uh, Afterpay. Afterpay, right. <laughs> Afterpay and X0. So, these stocks have gone up, but they've recently come off the boil. Is it a buying opportunity? Macca, what do you think? Case by case, Peter. Okay. I want to well, be very we'll careful that. about that. Okay. So let's start at the end, Zero. Now, I really like Zero, and they are global leaders in cloud-based accounting uh, software. Mm, yep. and, um, and they've really stolen a march. They've penetrated the US market. They're looking very good. The problem for me is the share price. That's right. right. So this is the, the best understandable business amongst all those, isn't it? Zero Absolutely. is. But I, I had a, a quick look. Um, According to FN Arena, the analysts think that the price should be $66, but it's currently $76, a 13% fall they would expect. Well, and today, Peter, we saw a rejection. It traded up to $77.75 and it closed closer to $75. And that's generally a short-term bad news sign. And I'd much rather buy it around $60 if I got that chance. Love the business. Don't like the share price. Macca, I did the um, MC job in the second year for Zero, and the share price then was $14. <laughs> I brought them on the show, talk about an interesting company, and I didn't buy it for them. <laughs> I hate myself for that, because I, I could see it was going to work. The, the thing that staggered me was, in the audience, it wasn't um, share investors, it was bookkeepers. Bookkeepers oh. who had switched from MYOB to Zero. Right. I thought that was a pretty strong lead. And, why I didn't stick with it is beyond me. Uh, we're all geniuses with hindsight. Peter. Yeah, we are. <laughs> all right, let's go to the next one, Afterpay. Now, this one I don't like, Peter. Huh? And the, one of the problems, I think, with Afterpay is the low barriers to entry for competition. We've already seen it. You know Zip's already in there, and they're yeah. a listed group as well. Even old-school consumer lenders like Latitude, which is the old Genworth, the yeah. old uh, GE, GMA, GE yeah. uh, company, um, you know, they've opened up Latitude Pay. Yeah. And that's the challenge. Now, Afterpay have done very well, and they've got first-mover advantage. Yeah. But I noticed last week they were hit hard when Zip announced its deal with Amazon. Yeah. Now, it's it a good thing for Zip. Very good thing for Zip. Um, interestingly, they gave up options over about 1.2% of the company to Amazon as mm. part of the deal. So I think they did everything they could to get in that door, but of course Amazon's got the reach that could serve them. And I think that's the big challenge for Afterpay now, is maintaining its first mover advantage. Yeah. I'm not a keen buyer here. I'd rather see it down around 20 to $22. Okay, and the analyst thing's got 12.7% upside from where it currently is. Right. But I, I do think this is a real... 50-50 stock and could go up or could go down. And and the developments overseas could be critically important, couldn't they? Because they are making encroachments in the US. And when their share price was rising, it was on the back of better than expected um, market share in the US. But we haven't heard much about that lately. No, that's all gone a bit quiet, Peter. Mm. And of course, these are still eye-watering multiples. So, yeah. um, and, and it's the same with all of these stocks, Peter. The right time to buy them is when they're unloved. Mm. Let's go to Altium now, um, Mike. Very interesting business, and not one I personally understand that well. This no. is online software for designers of electronic devices, yeah. and they can collaborate, they can draw down on other uh, other work that's already in that mm. system. Um, 
so what's really attractive about it is it's highly scalable. Mm. And so uh, I'm keen on, uh, on the idea, even though it's not a business that, that does a lot for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm a bit agnostic on it given that it's middling share price. Yeah, the analyst thing has got 1.2% upside. So they're, they're pretty well think it's fair value, don't right, they? That sounds I've got to say, um, uh, Roger Montgomery many years ago put me onto Altium um, and he, he made the point that it's basically the little boards inside, computers and all that sort of stuff. Right. They work on that sort of thing. I didn't understand it, but certainly it became a darling. Another one that I missed, <laughs> which I, I hate to admit. <laughs> I must be a dinosaur missing out on these fantastic tech stocks. Okay, Appen. Appen, this one I really like, Peter. This is automated language technology. And they've got a couple of dis different businesses coming out of it. One is generating the language for various voice-based applications that are transmitted digitally. And the other is helping with understanding language from a machine point of view. So once again, a very scalable business. And I really like the way this share price has pulled back, Peter. Back from $38, currently around 32 I think this one's right in the sweet spot yeah, at the well the, and the analyst thing has got 33.4% upside. So even if they're half right, I'd be quite happy. I, I hate it when I agree with analysts. <laughs> it worries me. It worries me. All right. So putting it all together then. Wisetech. Um, I went wise tech. That's right. Now, what's yeah. the wise tech has got clobbered. It was once regarded as a fantastic company where all logistics uh, trucking companies in the world would have to use their, their stuff. Yep. And then... It went off the boil. So explain why it went off the boil. So we had a short seller's report about two weeks ago. Yep. And, and this short seller has a position, let's face it. So mm. the research, they, the report that they published was exactly in line with their thinking on the stock. They so, don't like it. Yeah. They point to what they call accounting irregularities. Mm. They also suggest that there's real problems in an integration of all the uh, bits and pieces that Wisec have picked up over the years, bringing them together and making them work together. Because that, the level of acquisitions, is that what you're saying? That's right. Yep. And so so they, but they based this on anecdotal evidence. They mm. interviewed six customers. Well, that's not a very strong survey in, mm. in my mind. Uh, and I like this business. I think it's very uh, got real a application because it's going to a space where there is very little digital technology. Mm. Plenty of warehouses are digitised, mm. but it's that delivery chain and, and that last couple of kilometres that is open play. And uh, for mine, WiseTech are well into that space and uh, have got a big jump that it's going to take a lot. How to well on. has management responded to the short sellers' accusations? Well, um, and look, they pointed out something we should all know. Accounting standards vary around the world, yep. and there are different ways to treat different items. Mm. Now, the company has, I believe, put in place a reasonable defence for the way they treat it. Mm. There's plenty of room for opinion on it, mm. but it doesn't mean they're wrong. Yeah. And what we've seen in the stock since that is a real arm wrestle. On the day after it started trading again, after the company responded the second time, it fell as low as $24.30, mm. but it also rose over 29 in the same day. Mm. Now, since then, there's been a real arm wrestle in the stock, but the bulls are winning. Currently, twenty-seven dollars stay after falling fifty cents. Mm. I like the look of this one at the current share price. Uh, Maka, I guess for a person who, you know, can't be sure, what if someone just simply decide to play the whack stocks? There's, you know, there's one, two, there's five stocks in there, isn't there? Oh. One, two, three, four, five. You know, divide the, the they've got twenty thousand dollars, four grand on each. How dumb or how smart a play would that be? Well, that'd be a safer way to do it, Peter. Mm. We've noticed, noticed how volatile these stocks are. Mm. But, you know, anybody considering that should be aware that their portfolio could move up and down in value very mm. sharply. Mm. Uh, but if they're prepared to take that diversified approach, I mean, the reason, Peter, we see mm. such volatility is there's uncertainty about the future of these business yeah. models. Yeah. It's likely at least one will fail. It's likely, in my view, that another one will do stonkingly well and perhaps become another CSL. Yeah. So a portfolio approach would mean catching that big winner at some cost. Yeah, and I guess when it comes to something like WiseTech, you know, it is a, a, a speculative play, but if they pulled it off, it could be something that could be a, a real, as you say, a CSL. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I think at the moment Zero's got everything priced in. Yeah. I think at the moment WiseTech has got a, a lot of potential problems priced in. So mm. I'd rather buy the one where the share price is recognising potential problems. So, so if you go through the whole five of those, is Appen the one you prefer the most? That'd be my top pick, App and then WiseTech. And that's the one with the analysts believe is 33 upside. 33% upside. Gee. I hate going with consensus. <laughs> I just hate going with consensus, but in this case, I'll just have to wear it. And we should make the point that last time Michael was on the program, he didn't turn up last week, so I'm sure he was drinking too much from Melbourne Cup Day. Or, or planning <laughs> studying to. The form, or studying the form. Studying the form. Studying the form. But he did tip uh, Pilbara Minerals very, very strongly, and it rose 16% 
over the week and also Challenger and what else are you boasting Platinum about? Asset management. Yes, another, another <laughs> one. The They've been losers too, Peter, but, yeah. the, but those have performed very well for me. Great. Michael McCarthy from Soon C Markets. Well, the banks have not been impressing the market lately despite a reasonably good day today. But what's behind the banks and should we trust that the kind of share price we're seeing now and the kind of dividend yield they've been paying can be sustained? To answer that question, we have two brilliant bank experts in Charlie Aitken from Aitken Investment Management and Paul Rickard. And I've been cynical in saying brilliant bank experts. It is a stock that guys like you have to know, isn't it? Because you're in the market. If you saw it good value, you'd have to play the banks, wouldn't you, Charlie? Yes, but at the moment I own no banks anywhere in the world because of you know, ultra-low interest rates and uh, in, uh, margin compression and except yep. the few headwinds they're fighting. Look, I mean, it, it's Australian banks you need a view on though, right? Mm. I mean, if you, if you have Australian equities, you need a view on them. They're yeah. 30% of the market, they're mm. prime, um, you know, prime supplies of credit to the economy and you have to have a view on them. Yeah. And quite frankly, last week was not a good, pe- good session for yeah. Australian banks. Was Westpac's report worse than you, you would have expected? Yeah, a little bit. I, look, I think there's, look, personally, I think there's headwinds in Australian banking that are just not going away. Mm be they regulatory, be they low interest rates, be they competitive competition, be fintech just chipping away. I think like the last five years, Australian banks have actually lost your capital as an investor, but paid you dividends and franking credits. Mm. And if you assume that they're going to pay you dividends and franking credits, that's fine. Mm. But don't, don't, I would not be setting myself up to hope for capital growth when EPS is going backwards mm. and, and returns, internal returns are actually going down. But the dividends I do think are broadly sustainable. Paul? I think Charlie's being a little negative, but... Uh, <laughs> I am, because I, I, yeah, I, I don't think they've been great results. They haven't been great results. They've been underperformers, uh, although, you know, we've got uh, Commonwealth Bank back about $80. So uh, a lot of this does get a little overblown. I mean, I think we've got to... There are some headwinds. There's no doubt about it. Um, the disappointing part about last week's results was I thought the banks would have made more progress on cutting costs. Yeah. ANZ in particular, I thought, was a shocker, right? This was the bank that set itself up to actually take a nail to its business and get out of its get its cost base, and its cost went up. Uh, Westpac hadn't done much either. So th- that does show that it's pretty hard, uh, and, and that's ultimately what the banks need to do, because the headwinds of, you know, balance sheets aren't growing, right? We know that. In fact, uh, if anything, they went backwards a little mm. bit on assets. Margins are still coming under pressure. That ain't going away in the short term. Probably come under a bit more pressure. So the only option a bank has, if, if, if to grow its earnings, it either has to cut costs, or find new revenue sources, it's really hard to find new revenue sources for banking at the moment. So it's, it's largely about a cost story and managing the risk. And, and that was a disappointing part of, of, of the results it's last just, week. The only thing that worries me here is this reminds me of a conversation we could have had on Telstra three years ago. It does, yeah. No revenue growth opportunities, got to take costs out, dividends the one thing people are attracted to, dividend not quite sustainable but not the end of the world, mm. share price going backwards. I don't think it's quite the same as Telstra, but there's some similar yeah. Similar feeling for me. Yeah, and, 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 and Telstra, I, I take the point. Telstra has rebounded a little bit. I, I, so I think banks face challenges, right? But it, that being said, when you still probably can lock in a 5% yield, right, and you can even factor that down to, yeah. you know, the years out, that's still very attractive. So it, they do face it is. It, you're right, Charlie. It is, it is, there are similarities with, with the Telstra story. Mm. Um, although <coughs> I think the inertia... Mm. Telstra never had the, the dominant position of the four major banks. It had as a single supplier, but the four banks... The only thing I'll say is that it, 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 it is hard to cost-cut yourself to greatness. It is. It is much yeah. harder. Mm. Right? So but it, it is, but the whole salary structure of banks has to change, right? I mean, one of the things that banks are still operating are hundreds of branches, right, for a world that's now digital. Yeah, that's true. Right? So, and they're also, you know, bankers are still really well paid. It's not just the top people. That what we're seeing with bankers, if you look at the numbers, it's middle management. There are far too many people in these banks earning pretty good salaries. So the whole cost base has got to come down. It's just not about cost cutting, but that's what you'd like to see but, more of. So, Paul, one thing ANZ showed, and this kind of surprised me, that the number of loans they extinguished were actually greater yeah. than the loans they created. Now, they, they really mishandled the whole credit crisis. Yeah. Like, so when our... Put, put the screws on, ANZ particularly got Over it wrong, the top. right? So, so I mean, I think in any ways the CEO of ANZ is lucky to still be there, right? Mm-hmm. ANZ really mishandled that, not as badly as some of the other two banks did. Uh, and, 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 and so all the mortgage books, Westpac went down the fourth quarter, NAB also didn't make a lot of headway. So there's, you're right, there's not mm-hmm. a matter of balance growth, but uh, 
you know, you wouldn't want to see that quarter on quarter. No, no, no you wouldn't want to see You'd want to hope quarter. that's an aberration so, yeah. for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and probably the house price recovery is going to help. You'd want to make sure be, that doesn't happen. Yeah, sure. yeah. So I think to sort of where we're heading here, Peter, I mean, the good news about last week is, is Westpac got the capital issue out of the way, yeah. right? Now, it came up with a very gloomy outlook story. I'm not sure why its outlook was so, so gloomy. If anything, what it said Let's wasn't that much different than the other two banks. Yeah. But I think it got sandwiched between a bad ANZ result expecting that to be dreadful as well. That wasn't as bad as the market expected, as yeah. it turned out. Uh, Westpac had to find a reason for the capital. So it's out of the way with the capital side. The capital overhanger is still an issue for ANZ. It's not going away. So this whole thing with New Zealand is going to be out there. It's going to put a compressor on. Explain the New Zealand for people who don't know. Well, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, which is the equivalent of our APRA, not our, not, not the Reserve Bank of Australia. Their regulator still has, is still, Central Bank is still the regulator yep. of both, uh, from a prudential sense and also a, uh, controls the cash rate in the economy. It wants to see sort of segregated capital. So it wants Australian banks dominate New Zealand banking scene. So mm. it wants the Australian banks to actually set aside capital for New Zealand, for New Zealand yeah. which means they can't use the capital for any other part of their business yeah. at a much higher level than APRA wants. But this is the so biggest negative argument with the banks: is that the return on capital they're yeah. making will never be the same, yeah. right, due to regulatory change. So that's what everyone's got to get through their head: the yeah. days of eighteen percent ROEs and things. Mm. They're behind us, particularly yep. in the low-income. And they've lost right. businesses that Correct. could have made money. Yeah. So they've sold times. all the high-earning businesses yeah. like asset managers and things. So these are really mortgage banks that are having to hold more regulatory capital yeah. and the return on that capital is less. Now, that's okay if we all acknowledge that. Probably means the PE comes down a bit, as it has a mm -hmm. little bit. But we, we need to be aware that the days of glorious gro growth for this sector mm -hmm. are behind us. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a grind now. You've yeah. got to take costs out. Yeah. You're, fight, you're fighting regulatory change. You're fighting higher capital requirements. You can still arguably maintain these dividends, but it's going to be a little bit like Westpac for investors. Here's your dividend, but we need a bit more capital. Yeah. So we're just going to give you the dividend and the franking credits, but yeah. we're going to need a little bit of top up. Well, can I ask it's, it's, a, it's going to be a bit of a grind, is yeah, my Paul, and Paul, Doesn't mean it's the end of the world. No, but you, you, you're basically saying banks have to become old-fashioned bankers. Why do other banks reluctant to lend to business? Because a whole lot of non-banks have taken that space and they're charging unbelievably high interest I, I, I rates. Think, I think they are paying the cost from being so badly beaten up, they got scared. And I think yeah. that's what last year's little mini credit crisis with APRA shows you. Yeah. That in, in APRA's changes were only largely in the mortgage market, you know, particularly around things like principal interest and, and serviceability ratios, and the banks just roll over. Mm. <laughs> no one took them on. Yeah. And ANZ admits it, its processing time on a loan went out to something like 28 days, you mm. know? So no wonder they couldn't lend any money if it's going and to take 28 And non-banks were taking their business. Right? Yeah. So the banks are, are scared. Now they have to get find their ticker a little bit yeah. uh, and, you know, be responsible lenders in averted commas, meet all the tests, but also get a loan out there. So the opportunity is still in the business market, and maybe that's what NAB's showing, that yeah. it actually didn't get as badly hit as the other two, as at least uh, ANZ and Westpac did. So, yeah. look, the opportunity is still there, Peter, uh, and in the business market, they've just got to start to, to manage the whole credit application, the nimbleness yeah. stuff. That, that, but they've uh, got to be careful with yeah. this, because the, the generation younger than us, I don't believe they've got any loyalty to any no. incumbent no. Australian bank. No. So if they got no loyalty to anyone, even, even their parents. Little, little <laughs> but if they work out that there's other lenders that they can get yeah. money from, called wingman lender, whatever they are. But it, it is interesting. The banks have got to be careful that they don't scare off the next generation yeah. customer yeah. by being too reluctant to lend or having too high barriers to yeah. lend. Yeah. Right? Well, so story story today. Judo Bank, which well, is a small business bank, basically came out and said, "Well, you know, the banks are just giving small business to flick." Well, we'll I, I do think it. that's unfair. I mean, it's targeting a very select market, so they're going to get cherry picked in particular yeah. areas, right? Mm -hmm. And I think. Judo's an example of that, and a couple of I'm associated with examples, right? Athena, Athena Bank. They're going to get cherry-picked, right? Oh, yeah. and, and so that's where they need to be careful. And that's why, I mean, I, I agree cutting is, you know, very few businesses cut, cut their cost. There's no such glory in being cutting costs. Yeah. But they have incredibly um, expensive structures, right? You cannot substantiate. You need a branch every place to cater for a, a small port of the population well, the that doesn't pay. Right? Right? So they've got to take that that challenge by the head. Right. They've got to look at their own internal costs. So, I mean, look look at the average bank. Bankers are really well paid. Not talking about CEOs here. I'm talking about average middle executives in banks. They are really well paid. A lot well of them paid, are our right? fans. They I'm hate ex, you. I'm an ex, look, when I started in banking, bankers weren't well paid. Today, yeah. they're still well, they are overpaid. So, the whole cost structure is still wrong. Paul's still got his right? combat cardigan. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'd like to go back to the cardigan yeah. and the name tags. Yeah, but, but it is. But, but look, all you're saying, do you think that the current leaders of the big four banks in Australia 
realise the urgency or have the ability to deliver the change that's required? And I reckon the answer is no. I, Absolutely I think, not. I, I think possibly two do, and mm. maybe three do. I think, I think we've got to give them a little more time. Where's they, the evidence? Well, what are they doing? I think, I think the, the, challenge, chip, chip, the chip. challenge at the moment is that, is that when you've got the regular... They've mm, been the so tied up yeah. in regulatory pressure yeah. and having to meet remediation, whatever yeah. that is. And the media right? pressure linked to and that. And the media pressure, right? So they've, they've got to sort of take that challenge on and say, that's enough. Okay. We've done remediation. Right. Okay. We've done compliance. Right. We need less compliance, right. people. Paul, we need to move on. Rank, rank, think about our shareholders. Yeah, rank the banks. If someone wanted, hasn't got exposed to the banks, which ones would you... Oh, come on. Who in Australia hasn't got exposure <laughs> to a bank? Now, well, that's, that's invisible. Young that's investors, young investors. Our cameraman probably I, hasn't got exposed. I wrote, I wrote <laughs> a brilliant report in today's uh, Switzer Super Report, which Good ranks report. the three that reported last week. Okay. Right? Yeah. Look, there's not much between them, right? I no. put ANZ at the bottom simply because it's got the capital challenge above it, and yep. we'll probably have to raise capital. That'll yep. depress <laughs> share prices, right? NAB, if you like, want more exposure to business banking, you probably go for NAB. That's the same share price it was 20 years ago. Move on. I'd probably go for Westpac uh -huh. because it's, it was at a premium for the others, it's now at a discount. Mm. I still think CBA is probably the best, but there's not much difference. So, look, I mean, uh, it's, okay. I, I think National Australia Bank, new CEO coming, that's a positive, but new CEOs tend to get, you know, the, the process for a new CEO is to find your way, cut mm. a whole lot of staff, reorganise. That process takes some time. Yeah. So, uh, Charlie, uh, you're, you're, you're stand up then? I, I just think if you don't own them, you don't need to at the moment. Yeah. I think you can just, you know, if you don't own Australian banks, that's not a crime at the moment. Mm. I think there are headwinds that are not going away in the short term, and I think that the dividend yields will hang around and give the stock support so they won't fall apart. But I just think there's no great rush at the moment. Oh. And I, I just think there's other sectors and stocks where you can probably generate better total returns over the next year. Thank you. So, so just to find that argument up, because I can't, I've got to get them the last. Yeah, I don't love banks. Yeah, right? I, I, love I, I don't disagree with all the challenges, yeah. but you know, the Westpac share purchase plan, which is going to be at $25.32, no higher. It's a yield of, you know, worst case yield of 6.32%, right? Yeah. They've cut the dividend and the dividend looks secure. It's fully frank. It's hard to, to, for a, to a retail okay. investor to say okay. no to that, right? So if you haven't got a bank share, Paul's basically saying Westpac's probably the best yeah, one to go SPP, for. SPP, which you need to be a shareholder. Okay, yeah. that's right. And we're not giving you financial advice. It's no, just, we're not ah, giving you... It's just financial education. It's free education. Okay. Thank you, Paul Ricard and Charlie Aiken from me. Aiken Investment Management. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Peter. So the Perth Mint, everyone's ever, I think, heard about the Perth Mint, but who, who actually owns it? Yeah, Perth Mint's fully owned by the Western Australian government. Mm. And does it mean because it's government, you know, you can back them? They say they've put your money in gold. They've put your money in gold. Well, not only have we put, our, put people's money in gold, if that's what they've chosen to buy through us, mm. but uh, one of the unique features of the Mint is we have a, a government guarantee on the, the gold deposits essentially our clients have with us. Mm. Um, so it's a, obviously a, a very important additional level of security that gives people, investors all around the world, comfort leaving, leaving metal with us. Yeah. Tell us about all the you know, main activities that Perth Mint does to, to generate business. Sure, there's a, there's a handful of, I suppose, business lines that we're in. So obviously, Australia is the second largest gold producer in the world. We produce around, the country produces around 300 tonnes a year. Perth Mint refines over 90% of that output. Yeah. So all these major Australian gold miners essentially send their gold to the Perth Mint, we refine it. Uh, then we turn a lot of that, that gold into bars and coins, which we export to over 100 countries around the world and, and also sell in Australia. Yeah. Um, and then the, the big area of growth and probably the area that's of most interest to people that, that um, follow Switzer mm. um, is our depository and ETF solutions. Mm. So people can either buy and store gold with us directly yeah. or in fact we've got uh, an ETF or exchange traded product uh, that sits on the ASX that, that people can buy very easily. Now I would figure, particularly with inverted um, bond yield curves and, and the trade war stuff, the, the interest in gold has increased in recent times. That's, that's very true. <laughs> so if you look at the, the year to September, yep. gold price in Aussie dollars is up around 30%. Um, obviously very strong performance up in all currencies, but yep. in Aussie it's been particularly strong because we've had sort of three cash rates. We've had bond yields in, in Oz drop from I think it, the 10 years dropped basically 60% in, mm. the, in the last 12 months. Yep. So you've seen huge interest in gold. Probably the, the best way I can illustrate that is 
referred before to our Aussie ETF, the ticker code's PMGOLD, the inflows into that product um, around positive 45% year on year. So we've seen a huge uptick in demand from Australian investors. Okay. So a lot of people would be surprised that you actually have an ETF. So tell us about the ETF. Yeah, so it, like, like, like most ETFs, trades on the ASX. Um, it is, a, it is a reclaimable or redeemable in gold, which is a bit of a unique feature. Most yeah. um, ETFs aren't easy to redeem in gold. Our product can be. Um, but the most important thing for, for investors uh, is, is the cost and the security of it. So as I mentioned before, uh, government guarantee to underpin the holdings of the, e the ETF. Mm. Um, and just as importantly, the, the management expense ratio of it mm. is only 0.15%. So it's by some margin, the cheapest way to get a gold price mm. exposure through a, through a listed gold ETF. And I guess a question a lot of people would have is, if I go into um, GOLD, the ETF, PMGOLD. <laughs> PMGOLD. Um, and, and the gold price goes up by 10%. Mm -hmm. Does it go up by approximately 10% minus you know, any small fee they have to pay you guys? That's exactly right. Yeah. So it, it, it tracks the price of gold in Australian dollars. It's unhedged. Yeah. Um, and it's actually very easy to, you know, if you log onto the ASX, you can obviously type the ticker code into, yeah. into, into your screen. Yeah. You'll see the price. You could then go to the Perth Mint's website and you can see just how easily it, it tracks the Australian dollar gold price. So, mm -hmm. and it's been running for, for over 15 years. So there's an enormous track record for people to go back and essentially study that and, and see that it's performed in line with the Aussie dollar gold price. It seems a lot less cumbersome than actually in the old days, which is what you guys still do. You buy the gold and, you, and bank it, or basically keep it at the Perth Mint. Yeah, there's there's pros and cons to to each approach, and yeah. it's not to say one is necessarily better than yeah. the other. I mean, a lot of well, people talk us through them because people would be interested. Yeah, in absolutely. Them. So uh, to, to your point before, it was it was bars and coins that we you know we still do, and people yeah. want delivered to them or that they come and take from yeah. uh, you know buy and take from the Perth Mint. Um, then you've got the direct depository offering, so that's where you trade directly with the Perth Mint, not via the ASX or any exchange. Yeah. Now the advantage of that is you can do not just gold but silver and platinum, other metals. You can also have an account in US dollars. So for some particularly high net worth investors that like to trade in more than one currency, yep. that's attractive. Yeah. Um, but certainly, if you look at if I if I could sort of stereotype a little bit, the vast majority of say SMSF trustees yeah. who have already got a brokerage account and, and like trading via the ASX. Mm then PMGOLD is, is a very easy way for them to incorporate gold into their portfolio. And as I say, with a, with a management fee of just 0.15%, mm. it's by some margin the, the cheapest way of them doing it. Okay. Are there any other reasons why people buy gold? Well, I think there's a handful of reasons which are, are coming to the fore now. Mm. The, 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 the number one is that particularly in low interest rate environments, gold tends to perform very strongly. So. Mm. We did a study um, of gold price returns from 1971 through to the end of 2018. Mm. And in the years where real rates of interest, so factoring in inflation as well, when real rates of interest were 2% or lower, the average return on gold in those calendar years was about plus 20%. Mm. It makes sense, you know, there's, no there's much less opportunity cost in terms of income yep. that you're giving up. Yep. So that's reason one. Um, reason number two is it's, a, a, it's proved to be a very strong diversifier and a hedge whenever equities are volatile. So mm. again, over the same time period, if you look at months, quarters or years where the ASX has fallen, gold has tended to be the, the highest performing asset class. Mm. So it offers that defensive exposure. Um, and I think another one that's becoming increasingly important to investors is the fact that it is low cost, the fact that it is liquid, it's easy to get into and out of gold. The mm. gold market turns over about $100 billion a day. So there's a lot of reasons why people are, are putting, you know, typically it's sort of 5 to 10% of their portfolio they might yeah. be allocating to gold. Yeah. And I think, you know, you guys and others like you have made it easier for people to actually get a bit of gold. Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, innovation in, in terms of the, the way we deliver the product to the market is, is incredibly important and mm. that's why we've done what we've done over the last few years with the products we've, we've launched. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at that, those periods where you know, interest rates were low mm -hmm. and gold did well, they often come, because you're an economist as well, so I'm sure you would thought this, thought this through and I'm just reacting to what you said. A lot of those times were also would have been after stock markets crash and recessions 
were on and of course interest rates always shrink to try and recover the economy but people are so panicky it just seems like gold is the, is the most obvious choice. That's right so exa exactly spot on it's not just the fact that rates are low it's yeah. that the reason rates are low is 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 because things aren't going tickety boo. Yeah. So the sort of you know desire for investors to hold a sort of defensive safe haven only mm. increases, and because gold supply is so stable, mm. you know if demand increases, prices increase. Yeah. It's, it's and I guess that. at the moment, Jordan, a lot of people are a bit not point panicky, but they're a bit concerned about what's going to happen next. And so gold could be a, a good place to be, just in just for security purposes. But if the worst case scenario is, it probably will go for a rise. That's, a, that's my best guess. Oh, I, I think that's a, a really fair way of looking at it. So again, if we go back to why do people buy gold, mm. and I suppose I talked a little bit about the portfolio reasons in terms of you know, its performance in certain environments, yep. but to your point, the, the main reason they buy it is wealth protection. Mm. If it happens to actually you know, add some upside to their portfolio, then that's kind of the icing on the cake for most investors. Yeah, okay. Um, Tell me about someone with a self-managed super fund um, and why go you think gold is increasingly being thought about as an asset? Because usually it was stocks, bond funds, term deposits, maybe yeah. property. Yeah, so I think it comes back to some of the reasons that we've already discussed in that you know, a lot of SMSFs are sitting on pretty meaningful cash allocations yeah. and we're in an environment where the, you know, the real return on that's kind of already negative and it's sort of getting worse. Mm. So gold sort of is a bit of, can be a bit of a solution in that sense. It also then acts as the hedge against their equity market exposure. And I think last but not least for, some of, for SMSF trustees as well, is it also is an easy way of them effectively getting some foreign currency exposure in their portfolio as well. Because mm. if the Aussie, you know, obviously the Aussies come down quite a bit over the last few years, yeah. may well be under pressure in years to come. Well, for an Aussie dollar investor, mm. they will benefit from any decline in, in the value of the local currency. So those are in, certainly in the conversations that I have with direct SMSF trustees um, and indeed planners that service the SMSF market. Mm. That is, you know, those are the key things that are driving the, the allocation to gold right now. And I guess they could also take the, the US um, gold uh, exchange rate as well, couldn't they? They, they can, yeah. Um, and, and certainly people that trade with us direct can buy and sell in US. Um, but as I say, if I think of the, the sort of typical investor, um, they're generally happy to buy and sell in Aussie. Yeah. And, and actually that currency exposure balances out their overall portfolio in a way. Okay. So what's your view, on, no, no, before I ask about the view for the outlook for gold, the trends you're seeing uh, in terms of ETFs, bars and coins, what, what's showing up? So I, th I think the, the most obvious trend is, is the ETF market for gold is, is very strong. So mm -hmm. globally, ETF holdings are incredibly, uh, they're, they're at all time highs, they hit all time highs in mm -hmm. September of this year. And again, in Australia, it's particularly strong right now. So in the last 12 months, uh, ETF holdings globally rose by about 20%. Mm. In Australia, as I said before, our product alone, inflows were just over 45%. So they're even stronger Australia, in Australia mm. than, they are, um, than they are locally, so, uh, sorry, than they are globally. So the ETF market for gold is, is very strong. Um, bar and coin demand is, is always going to be an important part of the gold market. Mm. Um, and in terms of the other drivers of demand right now in the gold space, probably the, the most important one is, is the role of central banks. So central banks own well over 30,000 tonnes of gold. Mm. Um, and in 2018, they bought over comfortably over 500 tonnes. It was the largest single year of purchases mm. since 1971. Uh, since, sorry, since the start of the 1970s. And the first six months of this year, the numbers were even stronger again. So that's one of the things that's sort of obviously providing support to the gold market. Mm. Uh, um, and, and we suspect that, that that'll continue for some years. Have you worked out why? Because you're an economist. And that's an interesting trend that they... Cause I think uh, banks was actually, reserve banks or central banks were selling gold some time ago, weren't they? They were. So central banks as a whole, there was sort of net sales from the mid-80s right up until essentially the start of the global financial crisis. Mm. And then for the most of the last 10 years, they've basically been net buyers. Mm. Um, and I think it's a case of wanting to diversify their foreign exchange reserves. So, yeah. you know, typically it was a case of, you know, you could just put, put your money in US treasuries, you know, short-term securities from in the US. and in the sort of low yield or negative real yield environment we're in though, 
um, gold has again come back to the fore yeah. um, as, a, as a reserve asset. Yeah, and central banks actually do make money and, and governments then use that money as well, as we've seen locally. Finally, what's your outlook for gold? My view is, is prices over the, the medium to long term are, are biased to the upside. We, we've obviously had a very strong move in the last 12 months and, mm. and so over the last few weeks we've seen prices that are stabilised, which is, which is a healthy thing for the market. Um, but I think that as institutions, sovereign wealth funds, central banks continue to accumulate and as more and more self-directed investors realise how easy it is to incorporate it into their portfolio, we'll see demand rise and, and as I say, given the supply is so stable, mm. You know, any any increase in demand puts some upward pressure on prices. And do you think the trend on the Aussie dollar will also be supportive of those people who hope that gold delivers some kind of capital gain? Look, I, I think that if you if you consider that the the market is currently expecting there'll be at least another interest rate cut in Australia at some point in 2020, mm. and there's continued noise noise only at this mm. stage around unconventional policy here in in, in Oz, mm. then I, in Australia I think there's a there's a good chance that, again, the Aussie's got some downside pressure on yeah. it. A lot of um, people are talking 65. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's, a, again, it's a bit of an icing on the cake for the gold story, I think, for a local investor. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Peter. Thanks for having me. So that's gold in the spotlight and some very interesting issues. I think everybody would like to invest in China, but they're a bit afraid at the moment because of the Trump trade war and the implications of it. But certainly, given the fact that the Chinese stock market has been negatively affected by the trade war, if a deal comes along, you expect a nice big bounce for Chinese stocks. One way to invest is to go through a company that's a fund manager that operates in the space. Now, Catherine Jung is Investment Equities Director for Fidelity in Hong Kong and I'm going to catch up with her now to find out what's going on there when it comes to investing in China and is it probably better or even worth considering doing it through a fund manager. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here Peter. Tell us about your role at Fidelity International. So I'm an investment director so I sit within the investment team alongside our portfolio managers, mm. mainly represent our China portfolio managers and my responsibility across channels and geographies is to talk to our clients, the press, about our views mm. and portfolio strategy. Yeah. Do you um, tend to direct your portfolio managers or are you the objective set of eyes, you, you, you challenge them, test them on their views or you just cop whatever they say? No, that's our CIO <laughs> who advises and our, you know, mainly yeah. our CIO or head of equities. Yeah. Now I work alongside them and it's really to get the messaging and the position of the strategies out to, to clients. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really important thing. It is important. Because particularly when they, when they take a bold move which uh, pe people don't agree with, mm. the clients need to have someone to actually you know, tell the story. Yeah. So what is the story you're telling right now? So Asia is pretty unloved across mm. global portfolios, but we still think there are a number of interesting opportunities, mm. particularly when it comes to the Chinese landscape and the Chinese market. Mm. Okay. Now, I, I know with a lot of our financial planning clients, mm. we're, we're saying, well, if you really needed to make money, I would get you to exp expose yourself to China on the basis mm. of a trade deal comes along, yeah. there probably bounce both in the US and in China. But if you don't need to, let's sit and wait and we'll miss the first 5% and jump on board. Mm. Um, do, you, are you, do you think the trade deal is going to be important to give the Chinese stock market a lift or, or, or can lift even without a trade deal? Well, it's really sentiment driven and this trade discussion, all these discussions between the United States and China has gone on for what, close to two years now, mm. isn't it? Mm. So it's this overhang. But it's interesting, if we use the S&P 500 as a proxy, mm. that first sort of um, disagreement yeah. in September last year, the market was down about 20%. Mm. Then in May this year, the second disagreement, the market was down about 7%. In August, down 6 mm. So it's almost being priced in and perhaps the rationale is that the Federal Reserve will help underpin economic growth mm. by cutting rates, that multinationals are diversifying some of their manufacturing away from China. Yeah. But even if we do see the short-term resolution when it comes to the tariffs part of the discussion, mm. the relationship between the United States and China has changed. Mm. Okay, so ultimately then, somewhere down the track, 
stability will be established. Hopefully. Uh, hopefully. I was, I was waiting for you to throw <laughs> that one in. But are, are a lot of companies holding back their mm, investment? They are. Because they just don't know what's going on. You know, it got to a point last year where some of the companies were saying, we just don't know whether President Trump will tweet about us. Mm. So whilst we have cash on our balance sheet, as you rightly pointed mm. out, we're not willing to reinvest because we don't know about demand. And as a result, the Chinese government have really looked at easing or tweaking, especially from a fiscal perspective. And in fairness, the regulators and the policymakers do have the tools to ease and increase sentiment positively. Mm. But you mentioned the word stability, and it's quite interesting, Peter, because when we look at high-frequency word searches across any senior government official speech in China, mm. the word that comes up the most is stability. Mm. Okay. So let's just assume mm. there will be some kind of deal, mm. uh, phase one and hopefully phase two and phase three come along the way. But this is led out because to me, it seems to be something over the next year before an election. And, mm. and, may, and maybe we'll kick off again if he wins the election. But if someone wants to make money investing in China, if they took a three-year view, do you think that there's enough internal forces mm. and changes within China that are going to create lots of opportunities for your funds to make money over time? Definitely. Yeah. And it's interesting, this new norm that we're living in in terms of the relationship between the US and China, mm. essentially it's make America great again versus a made in China 2025 strategy. Mm. And the 2025 strategy is essentially the Chinese government supporting, even financially, companies climbing up the value chain. And, and this is the problem, or this is sort of the catalyst for this changing relationship. Mm. So if you think about it, uh, Apple and Huawei, Amazon and Alibaba, Mm. Most of their sales are derived from their own domestic markets. Yeah. But what about the rest of the world? And these companies are now competing mm. for market share globally. Mm. And so the relationship has become a lot less cooperative between the two economies, mm. a lot more competitive. Mm. And what I think is fascinating in terms of investment opportunities, mm. Chinese companies have become so innovative. Their R&D is amazing. And they really are, in fact, climbing up the value chain. And this is one area mm. that investors can really take uh, or participate in. Mm. Now, I interviewed the head of Alibaba Australia yesterday. Ah. And I was quite staggered at the amount of Australians who are actually um, buying stuff on Alibaba, but also selling stuff on Alibaba yes. as well, because the Chinese really like Western products. And that's a, a real opportunity for lots of small and medium-sized businesses with interesting products. Yes, especially mm. food-related products. Mm. Organic's very important in mm. terms of international imports for the Chinese consumers. But at the same time, a fascinating dynamic is, is occurring in China, and that is Chinese brands now really increasing their presence and tapping into their own markets. Mm. So manufacturers, historically, who would do stuff for international brands mm. are creating China-only brands. Mm. There's a really interesting name called Li Ning. I don't know whether you've heard of it. It's, it's named after oh, yeah. the famous gymnast. Yeah, and, and he has a sports store. Yes. In fact, your, your colleague Anthony Doyle talked about it at one of our conferences. Yes. Yeah. But what Li Ning did a couple of years ago is a classic turnaround story in terms of investment strategy. Mm. They hired top-end designers and they've created this brand called China Leaning. Mm. And you can only buy it in China. And it's streetwear or activewear, mm. which basically modernizes what Leaning and Gymnast wore in the 80s. And mm. it's really high quality. They showed it on the runways in Paris and mm. in New York. So it was written up in Vogue. The margins are a lot higher than the Leaning broad-based brand. Mm. And the company's seen a massive turnaround. Mm. And because they're not copying the designs of Adidas or Nike, they're really making the Chinese brand accessible and almost appealing mm. for Chinese consumers. And, and it's taking away from uh, the Chinese preoccupation with American brands as well, which a lot of young people yes. are committed to. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of companies also, e-commerce e companies, service-related companies, mm. their brand power is increasing and the, and the Chinese companies are saying because they understand the Chinese consumer. Okay. And uh, I, I know the argument is that China wants to reduce its um, uh, growth from exports and starting mm. to self-generate growth by building up the Chinese consumer. Yes. Is that happening? Yes. And is there a lot of upside to that, to that story? This is such a multi-decade theme that we're mm. seeing. So for example, Alibaba, mm. they've now entered 
the space of the rural consumption market. So there are technically 600 million rural consumers. That's not the lower tiered city mm. uh, consumers. Right. And they behave in a different way to your urban consumer. Okay. It's all about the pricing point, not so much about the quality. Mm. Now, 60% of this theme has already been penetrated, so at least 40%. Mm. So that's maybe another few years. Mm. But then what happens? The rural consumers, like their urban counterparts, start the premiumization story. Mm. So instead of buying packet noodles, bowl noodles. And this premiumization story is definitely occurring, whether it's in the auto sector, fashion, and then consumer um, like food goods staples. Mm. What I think we've, we've touched on what could go right over time. Mm. Is there anything else that you would throw into the mix to justify your excessive optimism about <laughs> investing in China over the next three years? Which, which I'm kind of on a unity ticket with you, but mm. I just wanted to hear what you, you have to say about. It. Is there any, is there any other force that's going to make this story even more believable? Not that it's not believable, yeah. but even more believable. Well, there are still risks, and we can talk about the risks. Yeah. But another key area, alongside the Made in China 2025 strategy, the Belt Road Initiative, is the opening up of China's capital markets. Mm. And as you see more stocks which are listed in Shenzhen, on the exchange there, Shanghai, we now have our own sort of NASDAQ boss, which is called um, the STAR board, mm. so Science, Technology, Innovation Board. When you see all this opening up and the fact that these Chinese stocks are being incorporated in global indices, whether it's FTSE, MSCI, it's now starting to be more representative of what we're seeing on the economic and political landscape. Right. So foreigners are definitely going to look more at China. Mm and represented in their portfolios. Mm, okay, so apart from positive internal forces, mm. you think there's gonna be even more positive external um, mm. forces helping the Chinese economy and its stocks and all that sort of mm. stuff head in the right direction? Well, what is key for China, and I know this is very contrarian because most people go, China, if mm. I'm to enter the market, I wanna buy Alibaba or mm. a consumer-related name. Yes, mm. and they're, they're great names. Mm. But what investors are ignoring, which is probably going to be a long-term positive trend for the Chinese market, mm. is the focus on income. Australians love income. Yeah. But what we are seeing through the regulators, because of improving corporate governance guidelines, are the state-owned enterprises, we call them SOEs, increasing their cash on their balance sheets and then rewarding minority shareholders mm. through higher payouts and higher dividend yields. Okay. And you wouldn't associate China with dividend yield, no. but it's, an, it's actually becoming more and more of a focus point. Yeah, it does make, a, make sense because in Japan, they love income so much, they'll take like half a percent at the, at the postal mm. site. It's the... GPIF? Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's like basically the postal savings bank, isn't it? Yeah. And interest rates have always been ridiculously low, but they put their money there. Yeah, but, but the Chinese income story is important mm. for mm. two reasons. One, you're improving the quality of the management teams. Yeah. So this is good for foreign investors, mm. who even if they don't want to go into China because of the change in the indices, mm. like from a passive perspective, mm. are adding more China. But it's really, really important for the domestic investor base. Mm. Now with this urbanization theme, higher incomes, and that's part of the reason why some manufacturers have diversified, because incomes are higher than let's say Vietnam, yeah. from a manufacturing perspective and a cost perspective. If you are a family and you're receiving more income, and let's say, as you rightly pointed out, the government wants the consumer and the services sector to drive GDP. We need to see that savings rate of 37% come down. It's only going to come down if, as a household, you feel secure in releasing some of those savings because of a better pension system, mm. a better healthcare system. Mm. So let's say the Chinese incorporate a type of superannuation system into the country. Mm. That's income or capital, where's it going to go? Because at the moment you've got two choices, cash, which is relatively low like the rest of the world in terms of the interest rate you receive, or property. And the property market, as President Xi Jinping keeps on reiterating, you live in a place, it's not for speculative activity. Mm. So if you now have like an Australian domestic investor, equities as a long-term investment or asset allocation, then you wanna look at the total return strategy, mm. i.e. the income side. Mm. And so historically, Chinese mainland investors have been very short-term momentum-driven. Yeah, speculators. Yeah, yeah, and now if they look at equities like domestic families in Australia do, mm. 
then it will change the makeup of the investor base in the market. And again, this is really positive for foreign investors. Okay. So um, the downsides, what, what are the, the risks going forward? Do you think? Policy mishap. It all relates back to policy. Mm. And I think what's really key to understand in China is there is this policy line that moves up and down. You can't be too far away mm. in terms of a company because you don't reap the benefits and you certainly can't cross the policy line. Mm. So policy mishap, the tweaking of policy in terms of fiscal, monetary, that's, that's good. But if we were to see another big stimulus plan like the global financial crisis, mm. that's probably a bit of a red flag because China still has some debt mm. that they need to sort out. Mm. Okay, so let's imagine that we've enthused the, the current non-Chinese <laughs> investor with this great little chat between you mm. and me. What are, what, what's the, the best fidelity fund to give yourself exposure to this great story? Well, it depends whether you want a, just a country exposure or regional exposure. Oh, in country. Okay, country, then I still think our Fidelity China Fund makes a lot of sense. Gee, that's, a, that's a good name, the Fidelity China Fund. Yes, well... Who, who could forget I that? I know, it's, you know, it says what it does. Okay. Um, she's a value contrarian portfolio manager or investor, Jing Ning. Mm which is incredibly unusual because, yeah. as we've been talking about, most, pe most people who like the growth story mm. or the growth angle of China. So she believes she can find value in every sector. So value investing in China isn't like value investing here, mm. where you buy utility companies, etc. Mm. And her performance over the long term, she underperforms in high growth periods. Mm. And it's been a very crowded trade market this mm. year, up until recently, where we're seeing a bit of a mean reversion. But she really gives you that broad-based exposure to the China story. Okay. Now, if you didn't want to go that, mm. what, what's another fund? That, or if you want to get two, one is a contrarian. Is there one that, that plays the momentum for China? Well, there's our regional fund that's mm. managed by Anthony Strom, who's actually Australian, but he's mm. based in our Singapore. We won't hold that against him. No, we won't. He's based <laughs> in our Singapore office. Yeah. And he is also a bit different in terms of his peer group. So mm. he's regional but he's very, very concentrated. Mm. So between 20 to 30 names. Mm. And for example, one of the best performing names in his portfolio is in fact a Chinese company called Kui Chao Maotai. You've probably heard Household of it. Household name, hasn't it? it? Well, it's, it's beginning to advertise a lot in yeah. Australia, oh, isn't okay. it? The billboards at the airport in Sydney. Oh, yes, I see that. Yeah, yeah. it's Baiju. Baiju is a little bit like, um, it's very, very strong liquor. <laughs> and it's the champagne of China. Mm. It's got first mover advantage, that premiumization story, the upgrading yep. that I mentioned, yep. it's really benefited from that. Mm. Huge demand. It even ran out of supply one year during Chinese New Year. And that name has performed incredibly well. Okay, so what's the name of that fund? That's a Fidelity Asia Fund. Another, <laughs> another <laughs> easy fund. <laughs> okay, thanks for joining us. Catherine. Thanks so much, Peter. That's Catherine Yule from Fidelity.